Is Mets dialing in here? Sub ding is. Whoa. So Yo, how's your Wi-Fi <laughs> in the hospital, dude? Are you in the hospital right now, dude? My, <clears throat> yeah, my my Wi-Fi is very good. Sweet. Nice. Are you in a patient's room right now? That's what I need to know. Uh, I am. I just want to introduce to you. Greg's a hell of a guy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. He's letting you. I'm new to the show, but I figured. Yeah. He's, he's going to be a breakout star. I know it. Dude, I have some doubts as to whether your Wi-Fi is really that good. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put internally at your disposal. Well... How are you, Mike? Um, I'm doing well. I am sitting in the hospital in the sleep room waiting to be called. Yeah. So I just I just finished doing rounds and we have like three main stations that we stop at. Yeah. And let them know that we're here and see just kind of get a pulse on how the unit is doing to see if anything's coming down the pipe. Um yeah. and also to see if there are any immediate needs. Um, and it was pretty, it was pretty clean tonight. We had one that was, uh, I'm going to get called later sometime, uh, to go back and see the patient, but it was pretty good. So yeah, man, you are in, you're on ground zero, dude. This is ground zero. I, anything can happen. Anything could happen. Um, thanks be to God. Nobody's life is dependent on this. Yeah, really. Only... Like their eternal salvation, but at least it's not their life, you know. <laughs> that would really be worth um, trembling. Mm-hmm. But, you're not talking about the podcast because people's lives are at stake. Well, yeah, sure, sure. I'm talking about here in the hospital. Okay, all right. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I put the phone on mute, so I could be getting called right now. I just <laughs> am choosing to ignore it. <laughs> Wait, do you, you have a uh, an actual cell phone? Yeah, they have like a hospital system. Wow, that is. So me and Scott would joke about this because we both at our hospitals that summer had pagers. Dude, I still have a pager. I have a pager. I have uh, one of those too. They have a pager and a cell phone? Pager and a cell phone. Talk about belts and suspenders, dude. Oh my gosh, man. There's so much stuff you have to carry around. and. uh, Do you have a utility belt? No, but it feels like I have one sometimes. I have a Batman utility belt. I have like six six things strapped to my belt. For your... All your antiquated technology. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Scott said something funny. He said about the, the pager that it's the fanny pack of electronics. Mm. That's very true. Mm-hmm. I wish they came in tie-dye like my fanny pack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been all over the globe. Dude. Not, not literally, but I went to El Salvador for a little yeah. 10-day jaunt with my nice. sis. Yeah, me and my sister went. Now this is our third time together. Since basically I was ordained a priest... Uh, two years ago, a little over two years ago, I've, um, gone every year since and visited the orphanage. Dude, I think we podcasted about your first trip down there with your, with your sister. Oh yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. When we said our first mass, me, Scott and Jamie all went down because we had all been there as seminarians and we got ordained the same year. So we did a massive Thanksgiving down there, but it's, it's so good, dude. Um, 
I have a lot I could talk about. But I was reading, I'm reading two books right now. I actually just finished the Chesterton one. Have you read many of Chesterton's um, novels? Um, They're sort uh, of weird. Yeah. Like, uh, the, first one I ever, the first one I ever read was The Man Who Was Thursday. I've basically read, the, the two that I've read now are because of Dawn Eden talking about them. Yes. So she, she referred <laughs> That's to Doctor. The, That's <laughs> Doctor, Dr. Don Eden. Dr. Don Eden. She is awesome. I think in one of her books, which I was reading, she mentioned the man who was Thursday in her own conversion story. And then so I read that, which wow. was, was pretty confused about it. <laughs> can, can I'm going to send you a commentary on it. That'll help out. All right. It's been a while since I read it. I, I mean, I, I think I understand the point. His stories are so allegorical. That I mean, like people just obviously are standing in for ideas or philosophers or something like that. And if you don't know the whole context, which I suppose like a commentary would be helpful. But anyway, the one I read just uh, this past couple of weeks was Man Alive. Have you ever oh, read that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, not, I've not read that a couple of times. Oh, man. So he's just so <laughs> clever. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, ripping apart, ripping apart modern man. I feel like his. Did you book, like it? I did like it. Yeah, that one I liked better than the man who was Thursday. But I, I am really attracted to this idea of. Uh, I don't know if he ever says puts these two words together, but the the scientific lunatic. That and we've talked about this before about the Chesterton's idea of sanity and orthodoxy, and how sanity orthodoxy is sanity it's like having an open enough mind to be the way i kind of think of it is like letting objective reality this goes to your point about the cpe supervisor letting objective reality shape us rather than us Mm -hmm. trying to make objective reality fit what we want it to be or what we think it should be and um that to me is kind kind of seems to be the point of man alive and frankly much of what chesterton says uh i kind of feel like i want to read everything that he's ever written and then go back and read uh everlasting man and orthodoxy again after i've read everything else he's written because i think that those are probably his masterworks and you could go back and read them over and over again but what was interesting was that the other book i'm reading uh, is a book called Addiction and Grace by Gerald May. <clears throat> Have you guys ever heard of that or picked that one up? No. Nope. It's interesting. He's a, he's a psychologist, psychiatrist kind of dude and very Catholic and very orthodox um, in his belief. And he's talking about the theology of grace as a layman um, in the in the academic sense, not a, not a theologian, but a psychologist talking about his experience as a psychologist and as a christian with grace and he sort of um as you do sort of broaden the definition of addiction to not just be like chemical addiction and tolerance and withdrawal and whatnot from like barbiturates or any kind of any anything the body can actually become addicted to whether it be cocaine or chapstick you know like where your body gets used to something and then you just need it because your body stops naturally making what kept you in balance. Uh, he's saying that like any almost anything can do this, like a relationship or um, a routine, like reading the newspaper or whatever. And 
the Eucharist. <laughs> well, that's an interesting one because I thought about all that stuff because, like, even even your conception <laughs> of God, he puts it like your 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 habitual way of relating to God. Uh, any of these things can be attachments or addictions when when they become part of like a new normal, where because our body our our bodies and our lives and our rhythms kind of naturally seek homeostasis or equilibrium. And when a new thing is introduced, whether it be chewing tobacco or the mass, and you just get used to that thing, like you feel it when you don't have those things. Mm-hmm. You know, like people that are exercise junkies, like they they don't feel right. They get crabby. They they have the same quasi withdrawal sy- symptoms as a as a smoker would if they can't get their fix. You know. And so his whole point was basically like you, if you want to test if you're addicted to something, stop doing it. And see if you get crabby or, you know, get withdrawal symptoms or, or whatever. And I don't know, to, to me, not to ramble on too much, but what, what was interesting about it was that, like, he says that God is the only good that doesn't admit of, of attachment. Because, and this gets to your Eucharist point, Mike, is that, like, he is constantly, although he is unchanging, he can't be grasped do you get what I, you see what i'm getting at yeah like god cannot be put into our system like where all right god every day what i like to do is wake up have a cup of coffee read the newspaper and then sit in front of the blessed sacrament and have you do exactly what i want you to do to make me feel good hmm. do you get what i'm saying yeah like the relationship with god is is dynamic because it's changing us mm-hmm. he doesn't fit in and change according to what we like um, or what we expect. He, of course, always works to, for our good, you know, but often that's painful mm. and often that requires us to let go of things that we think we need or we think we want. Uh, but I thought those two, I don't know, does that make sense to you that those two things seem to me to interlock and being in El Salvador where like nothing is familiar, you know, I mean, I've been there a bunch of times now, but you know, no air conditioning, no hot water um the water is like only on three or four hours a day and all this stuff you're just out of your comfort zone you're not speaking your own language i'm like yeah this is it this is letting the world change me rather than trying to fit the world into my own little boring conception or categories you know and may and this is maybe this is the 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 kernel of it all that i've been thinking about and praying about he says that that contemplation is going through life in an undefended and open-eyed way. Does that make sense? Like to you guys on CPE, that contemplation or like a real honest and open relationship with God is just letting reality change you, your mind and your heart. I don't know if I'm just rambling or is that, that that's what I've been thinking about. No, I mean, I don't know if I don't I don't know if I'm on exactly what you're saying, uh, but it's something I've I mean, I think a similar train, if nothing else, I've been thinking a lot about the past um, few weeks. Is I mean, and maybe it's just more basic that um, we receive the world like there is reality outside of ourselves, 
And if you don't have that, uh, to me, it's just, it's kind of boring. Like if you, if you can't talk about that. Um, so I don't know, is that like the sim- similar train of thought before I continue too much? Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's kind of like the spiritual autism thing. Like we, when life gets really exciting or when this man alive character who jumps over the fence into these people's lives and starts shooting their hats off with a revolver and like just freaking them out. And then he's got Chesterton has a great line. He's like, sometimes people need priests to remind them that they'll die. Sometimes priests, sometimes people need priests that remind them that they're not dead yet. Hmm. You know, like to just like open your eyes and actually look at the world. Actually look at the people in front of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, just to give but, you an example, like the but orphanage. Like, I still think, yeah, anyway, my only point to that is, like, you still have to operate on the grounds that that, and I know this sounds crazy, maybe this is just, like, the state of <laughs> my last month or whatever, you have to operate under the grounds, like, the premise that that person in front of you is real. Yeah. And if you don't, that's what I was talking about, it's boring. Like, if you want to, anyway, continue. No, that's exactly right. Like the, the example I was going to give is the, the orphanage, like where <clears throat> even that has fit into my little yearly routine in some in some respects. And like those kids down there who really fed me and taught me who I was while I was a seminarian and made me want to be a father to them and to all who need a father in the spiritual order. I can go down there and just expect them to like be that for me all the time mm-hmm. rather than actually like engage a kid or a person from El Salvador with all their suffering. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't make for a nice little romantic story with a clean bow on the end, you know, mm-hmm. but it's so much better and so much more real to engage the, the actual facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's all really abstract, but Mike save us. Do you know, do you understand what I mean? <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> If you're looking for that, we're in trouble. I know, Rob, I I think your point is hilarious and true because in this attempt to, like, oh, everyone believe your own thing, there's no meeting point, um, it kind of negates the possibility of two human beings meeting. It's like, on, on what grounds are you meeting? If the person in front of you is not for real and everyone's truth is just their own truth, I think eventually it turns into like a solipsistic mentality, which is solipsism. I think that's the right word where people just think they exist without, they think they're the only, right? Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Solipsism is, yeah. It's like you yourself only basically. Yeah. So when there's, when there's no other reality around you besides your own, then I mean, the epitome of boredom slash, I don't know. I mean, I, some people have used it as an analogy for hell. Uh, well, Dante, I mean, it just turned in on yourself to the point where you trap yourself and it's just you and there's no one to challenge you and there's no one to pull you out of yourself. I mean, that's like yeah. the Christian life, you know? So I think your example actually hits it spot on as as abstract and kind of far out there as it is. When you take it to the end... You just have a bunch of individuals walking around um, and you have no ability to meet the other person, which is so sad because um, that, that was one of my big frustrations is not feeling free to 
like ask questions. Uh, I know that sounds so basic, but um, like tell me what you really think. What what is what are the things that are important in your life, and what are the things that you believe when you say things? What do you mean by that? Well, to and, try and figure out who this who this other person is, try and get to know them and encounter them. Yeah, and, and a, like a, an embracing of our true humanity is not a lack of liberation. Like, I guess to understand that, like, you have to, even to speak, like, if you're speaking a language, you are assuming, you know, certain symbols and things that, that have meaning. Um, but the meaning has to come from somewhere. I don't know. Sorry if that was even more abstract. Continue, Mike. Yeah, no, well, I, I just watched a Baron video recently when he talks about, there's an Irish poet, um, and she, I don't know if she's explicitly Christian, but I think it, something about the unconventional, the unconventional, like, prayer, what, what unconventional prayer will do. And a lot of what he talks about is when you actually pray, there should be not a sense of fear, like, um, afraid of your, um, your own health or afraid that you're going to get attacked or anything like that, but a sense of fear that you're unprotected in front of a being who's going to draw you outside of yourself, yes, dude. like outside of your own comfort zone. And he gave a hilarious it example yeah. yeah, about being in France and he hadn't spoken French in a while. And I think this is him. Yeah. And he sat there and tried to order and said something ridiculous. And, um, the waiter just had no patience and ended up leaving. Um, and he used the language itself as, kind of that example as the objective reality outside of yourself, that French still exists. And you can be a part of French and use it to connect with other people, use it to communicate with others, or you cannot. And French, the objective reality outside of yourself, won't give two shoots if you <laughs> if you use it or not. Like the rules and the realities of French are still going to exist and are still going to be beautiful and intricate and old and historic and uh, just absolutely amazing whether or not you participate. Um, but it, it comes first by stepping into that reality, bumping into the laws, bumping into the rules that are going to set you free to, you to speak to the language. Basically, Exactly. That's essentially it. It leads to liberation, but it comes from kind of being knocked around, not being able to talk, um, not being able to communicate. But you have to have that objective reality to meet the other uh, was one of the points. But I just love that idea of like, yeah, he kept saying like French doesn't care if you use it or not. Like it's still there. You're not going to change French by not using it. The only thing that's going to happen is you're not going to know French and you're not going to be able to order lattes or whatever. Um, that's just the example that came to mind though. Yeah, man. And it makes me think of something. I think juice, you talked about that priest when two of his parishioners were going to go off and do some missionary work and how he felt, he felt a certain trembling at the responsibility of having kind of evangelized these people. And now they were going to go make a life altering and possibly life threatening decision yeah. for the sake of Christ. And that was on him. Yeah for introducing them to Christ. Yep. And it's like, you know, not that any of us speak the language perfectly of grace and and surrender 
to God and his will for your life, but <clears throat> like we've at least been doing it for a decade or more. And when you introduce other people to this way of life of like really engaging with God and the reality of God and the kind of like insane things he will do <laughs> with your life if you let him and how you get knocked around and how it's not always pleasant, but it's always beautiful. Uh, you're like, do I really want that for my loved one? Like, yes, I do. I want the outcome, but knowing the process and the pain and the, and like the morning of like letting die certain like attachments to self image and, and whatnot, like, I don't know. It's like, I, I remember stepping <laughs> off a plane and this is so mild now looking back on it, but in Costa Rica, my first summer after pre-theology, the first time ever out of the, well, not the first time ever out of the country, but certainly ever by myself and being picked up by someone who spoke Spanish, like not knowing whether I was going to get picked up, like having a pretty good idea, but you just never know on the other end of that plane ride Stops. whether somebody's going to be there for you and then you don't <laughs> have any idea where you're going and you get dropped off and no one speaks English and like that sort of just jarring, uh, I don't know, you, this con concussed feeling of being completely out of anything familiar is so often the case when you let God take control. And that's happened just so many times. You get you get kind of used to it. Like in the hospital, go, walking into someone's hospital room, like it doesn't bother me anymore, not knowing what's behind that door. But at first, you're terrified. I remember... That's, lit that's literally like the only... Um the only thing about myself that I would say I've actually matured in the spiritual life and think it's accurate would be exactly that of like certain encounters um, in, in kind of different facets of life. But I've, I've recognized it in the past few years of myself of like where it's gonna, it is totally disorienting and the thought will come through my head of like, I've been here before mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean it's less disorienting. That's what I, that was like the maturing part for me it was like, it doesn't mean it's going to be super easy or whatever, but I can say like, I've, I've been here before. I know this feeling anyway. Sorry. Yeah. I don't, and I don't even want to touch what we're not talking about, which is this flight from objective reality that we see in our culture and also a coddled generation that has ne has not, <laughs> has been completely protected and, and had every risk mitigated. Like if it weren't for me choosing to go fight fires in Northern California or choosing to join the seminary or choosing to do any of the number of things I did as a result of that choice, I could have easily <clears throat> with my upbringing in our culture, just been like the world owes me a safe space and to never be challenged and to never change. And that would just suck. You know, and so I, I guess what we, our value proposition as a church is to be like, hey, look, uh, you can have that, but it will make your life a complete chore and have nothing interesting happen to you and you will do nothing interesting. Yet, if you sign on for this adventure, I was just, you know, <laughs> this is funny. A uh, lot, a lot of ladies in the parish what up will <laughs> will say things to the effect of oh you're just like my grandson or you're just like my son 
And a lady uh, of great intention and of great faith and holiness said something to that effect to me the other day. And another lady said, who is just a kind of a truth teller, but also very, very sweet, very, very faithful. And she goes, oh, yeah, I'm sure that's what he needs is a lot more mothers. <laughs> and I was like, lady, you just put words to something that I felt every single time someone has said that to me, mm-hmm. which is like, I don't need more mothers. I have a mother. I have spiritual mothers as well, but one biological mother goes a really long way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's an extremely important relationship, and I wouldn't give it up for the world. But as a man, to be mothered by lots of people is emasculating and suffocating uh, to some extent. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not so insecure in my masculinity that I let it affect me that much, but it's just like, ah. Uh, you know, I don't want, the, I don't want a bunch of mothers. What I want is a bride who wants, who asks everything of me. You know, what I want is children to protect. You know what I mean? And that, I want that call. I want that like thing in front of me or that, that relationship, which obliges me to give everything, not to be like taken care of and protected and have things baked for me. And like, all those things are nice. It's nice to be taken care of, but uh part of growing up and becoming a man is like taking care of other people you know people who who can't take care of themselves or or only you can provide this thing you know um i can't remember what i was connecting that to but does that make sense yeah i think you're connecting it to the um the kind of cushy life of that the culture provides right yeah where you're entitled to things and it's easy yeah, because if we had to go out and work in the fields in the dust bowls of Oklahoma, like there would be no doubt as to the necessity of my brawn, however meager it may be. Like as a man, I would be out there doing stuff. But like you can feel very taken care of, very pet-like if you don't actively put yourself out there in situations of risk and work and difficulty. You know what I mean? Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, we're, man, we're kind of all over the board. Um, yeah. And you got any dope stories, Mike? No, you're right. It, well, I, I dope story. It's not so much about, um, you know, being coddled and the in, in, entitlement mentality that Doesn't matter. we were saved from. And I, yeah, this is really one that uh, this family that I have. Relax. Hey, Mike. English and Spanish. Yeah. It's breaking in and out. I mean, I'm understanding what you're saying. Is there any way you can move your computer or anything to like a place closer to the router? Yeah, it's been pretty choppy. I have no clue where the router is. It's a tiny room. No, you need to get to the mainframe. Do you have like a chaplain's office office you could sit in? Or you're plugged into the wall, aren't you? Yeah, but... Yeah, and the internet's actually worse there. Okay. It's like a five or six minute walk. Keep Is going. there some type of like master switch somewhere? <laughs> All right, like I just moved the computer. Grid? You sound actually much better. So to summarize, this baby has water in its brain. It was on an oscillator, which like works as a diaphragm to expand the lungs and put air in there. Yeah. That's what I heard. Yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. Thanks. I that think it was like a thing that you just 
and summarized in two minutes. <laughs> Hispanic family. Go on. Hispanic is a full picture. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I was just kind of amazed by the oscillator. It's a diaphragm outside of the baby. Absolutely incredible. Um, and so, yeah, I was progressively meeting with this family more and more. The baby was not getting better. The baby was only getting worse and um, was never conscious. Um, was, I mean, on tons of medication and just was hooked up everywhere, everywhere. Um, so the family, you know, after I'm visiting a bit more and more, they start to decide. They had a priest up and baptized the, the little girl. And, you know, they're coming to the realization that she's not going to get any better. And as a matter of fact, she's getting worse. And um, there's really there's really no hope um, in terms of uh, her improving and getting out of the hospital. So they decide to de-escalate. So they're going to extubate her. They're going to remove the oscillator. And it's a pretty big deal. It was kind of cool to see all the nurses uh, come around and um, like help out with this little baby and become a part of the family. And um, so there was like a whole morning planned where they were going to de-escalate the baby. The doctor was going to come down. They were going to clean, like bathe the baby. And um, we came for all of that. And they bathe her and they put her in her baptismal dress, her baptismal gown. So she's this tiny little baby, just like wow. super adorable um, in in her baptismal gown, you know. And she has these little bows tied around her feet um, with the bow on top that look like little white shoes. And um, I mean, she's still very, very tiny, you know, was alive for 25 days. And it was amazing talking to the parents to see just how like how true they were they were so meek and so humble and so kind um you know spoke when they were spoken to were always in there praying every time i'd come in they'd be reading scripture in spanish and um all the parents were just so loving and so hospital even though they were the patients they were just like so kind and welcoming to everybody um and so i get there that morning they bathe her they put her in her dress they put the bows on her feet um, they, you know, there's this whole delicate process that they have to go through. Um, and I'm kind of with the mom and all the family starts visiting. The family just keeps spilling in and they're all dressed in white. All these family members are, most of them are Spanish speakers and they're all dressed in like straight white, white shirt, white pants, white dress, white shoes, everything, which is what they, which is what? is you said being what, symbolized which is what the white all the white is, stuff yeah it's a symbol of, of purity love mm-hmm. of of the baptism um and i talked to the mom a couple of times and one of the things that they um warn us about is like don't talk about you know oh don't worry the baby's going to be in heaven because it's kind of seen as like this avoidance of of the reality of the present situation um, to kind of look ahead so you don't have to look at the the current painful moment. And the mom was like bringing this up to me of like, we know that she's been baptized and she's, I mean, a perfect soul and she's going to be in heaven. And so we're just trying to decide what's best for her and uh, totally like clear headed, totally level headed, but still suffering and like crying through all of this. And obviously like this is a mom losing her child. And so what they decided to do 
um, was when they went to extubate her, when they wanted, when they were going to remove her from life support, they um, removed the oscillator and moved to a manual oscillator. So the doctor came down and has like this hand pump that she's hand pumping this oxygen into. Um, and the baby is in the mom's arms and the dad is walking with the mom and they have their other child in the dad's arms. Um, and it's like me, the nurse, the doctor, and the respiratory therapist with the oxygen tank and the family. And we remove her from her bed, hold her in her mom's arms, make the switch from the machine to the manual. And we start walking down like through our pod out of our unit and are walking down the hallway. And I guess there is a patio outside on the back that's outside. And it was the closest thing to fashion that I feel. And it was incredible to see the way that we walked down. And a lot of the nurses and the floor knew what was going on. And total silence. Everybody cleared the way and was kind of like standing in the halls or in rooms watching us as we walked by. Very solemn, very, very respectful. And we finally get outside to the patio and the mom's wish was to have the baby breathe fresh air and to feel the sun on her skin, which she had never, ever felt before. Um, um, and onto the patio and we spend a little time and the parents are there just kind of hold. And everybody's a mess, dude. All the nurse, the nurses, the doctor, everybody's just bawling. And, the mom was like, okay, I'm ready. Um, let's go on and do this. And so they take a little oil and the oscillator is um, stuck to the baby's. She, she starts rubbing oil on the adhesive. Be sure to take it off without ripping the baby's skin or anything. And for some reason, I just, um, I'm not a singer. You know, I, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and honestly, I don't really like singing in public. Um, I like seeing to myself, but I just get this inspiration to sing the Hail Mary. And so as she starts doing that, I just start seeing kind of the, the traditional Hail Mary song and of the Hail Mary is pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And it's a very beautiful melody and thanks be to God. I, you know, I don't think I wrecked it. Um, but Right when I got to the very, very end of of the prayer of the Hail Mary, um, it was like perfect timing. And the the doctor extubates, pulls the oscillator out, and total silence. And the parents are just sitting there with their child, and you know the the child lives for just like very few few seconds, and then um, ends up passing away. And we slowly make it back indoors, and I'm kind of the last ones out there with them, and give them a hug and kind of be there with them. Uh, and then we leave them be. And the parents sat out there looking at their child for, I don't know how long, man, but they were out there for a long time. Um, but it was one of, if not, it's certainly the most profound moment I've had here at the hospital. But I also thought that it was one of the most um, real experiences of life that I've ever seen. Um, and I say that, because there was such a, a strong faith there, such a dependence on God, 
and the reality that there's an afterlife and that my child is baptized and is truly God that's going to go right into his loving arms. Um, but also immense suffering, immense pain, tons of tears shed, tons of pain of mom and dad that they let us join in to. I have just never seen a more beautiful combination of all of those things. So we talk about like letting that objective reality shape us. The whole floor, like all of the nurses that were working there with us, the doctor, everybody came back in. Everybody's hugging one another. They're all crying, like borderline rejoicing, not in the death of the child, but in the beauty of the moment that we were all invited to participate in, that we all were privileged to be a part of. And I guess like we talk about the transformative nature of that objective reality and the beauty of it. Um, and that example just like just comes straight to mind, obviously, but has been a really big part of, of being here in the hospital and to be a part of that moment. And I think to to now be able to have that family look back on that moment and like some families who may have done it differently in the past, you know, this place of pain that they shun and exclude, like, oh, let's just get rid of the baby um, you know, m- maybe somebody terminates a pregnancy because they know the baby's going to be really sick or on the flip side, they can't let their child go. And so you have a child who's like three who's been hooked up on an oscillator and has never woken up before. And, um, you know, that's also somebody who I, I think doesn't accept the reality that the, you know, the child isn't going to get better. But, but for this family, there's a moment in time when there's deep pain, deep loss, deep suffering and of course, it's it's going to hurt for sure, but they are going to look back, I think in the same way that I look back and see that that was one of the most transformative and uh, honestly beautiful moments that I certainly I've seen since being here this summer, but maybe one of the most in my life. Um, and it was because an objective reality was placed upon that family and they looked at it and had confidence and faith to move forward into it. Um, so I know it's kind of a long story, but oh, man, that's profoundly uh, real was, and yeah. exactly. I think what we've been talking about, but actually makes sense. It, dude, it <laughs> yeah, was, I, I've never, I've never seen anything like it in the amount of ritual that was going on implicitly. Like no one was even talking about it but just came about by being humans and dealing with death um, was also pretty remarkable. Um, well, and thank God you had a ritual language already, like that the white garment meant baptism and everything that all the layers of meaning that are in that. And the idea you mentioned the word procession of like the idea of a procession and like all, all of that. Yeah, it was improv improvised, but in a language, even to your French thing, it's like in a language that those people spoke so fluently that they did that. I mean, that's, that is a serious story, dude. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to paint the moment. Um, Hmm. like that's just the only, I mean, I've told it a couple of times. I told it to my dad and, um, I, I told it to a couple other, I told it to my but there's just, there's so much to it and it's a huge privilege for me because all these experiences I've had in the hospital, like that one, 
I that's what a what is a priest, and I feel like the Lord is calling me to as a priest to be a dad the whole morning. You know, to be able to pop into the room, move the curtain, and say, "Hey, morning, guys." As just and just sit outside the room and pray my rosary and pray for the family and just be there um, and then to have them come out and just know that I'm there and give me a thumbs up or give me a wink and um, just to be like that father figure there for them and to walk with them to the death of their child um, and it was like the most beautiful day it was on top of this you know we weren't way way up but you could see the skyline in the background very sunny very blue sky so the baby got the full that air and oh my gosh, she felt the sun, man. It's hot as the Dickens down here. Um, but it was just this collision of collision of reality that I think blew everyone's minds wide open. Um, and that's and already, I guess to be already in a place that's already colliding with life oh, and sure. reality a lot in a sure. hospital, especially sure. a NICU. And so to add the depth of life that can sometimes be neglected in a hospital where it's, you're just taking care of the physical, which of course is what you do. But then to see like that extra dimension to it. Um, and uh, I was privileged enough to be the symbol of that, you know, just by being the chaplain, I'm saying there's more here than meets the eye. There's more going on than just the death of a baby. You know, there's life, there's transformative love and, I think everyone saw it, but then in this instance, everyone experienced it. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just life clashing, crashing right into ours. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. I, this, it was this reminds me of something I said in a funeral homily this morning, actually, but uh, in a t- from a totally different perspective. Um, it was an elderly woman who was just ready to ready to die. But the, there's a difference between, I think, between choosing to die and refusing to live. Mm. And, you know, they chose to die, like they themselves and their child. Like this is, I mean, the the alternative would have been, like you said, to just keep the treatments going and, and kind of refusing to accept reality that... Um, the body is dying and these extraordinary measures are just sort of keeping up the facsimile of life. Uh, and that really what's happening here is that, that your baby is dying. And so to just assent to that, you know, and it's it's certainly not like choosing death as in killing, but, uh, assenting to it saying into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit, you know, like this is, this is happening and I'm not running from it. But I'm not also choosing death as an escape, you know. I'm not refusing to live this moment and like enter into it. I'm not choosing to just like, I don't, you know, like sometimes people will say about their dying relatives like that they don't want to go see them because they're, they have tubes and whatever. They're all sick and they want to, you know, I don't want to remember them like that. I, like that's almost it doesn't make any sense to me like what do you mean you don't want to remember this isn't about you like having the memory that you like about this person it's engaging like if you love a person then i don't want to i don't want to cast aspersions on anyone who's ever said that or felt that because i i've can't speak from experience myself except my i was there with my grandpa when he died last year up until the end but 
I just think that that's misplaced, whatever that priority is of like trying to keep in your mind the ideal reality that's not really real of that person rather than entering into the ugliness and the messiness of what dying actually looks like. And then seeing beauty pierce through it like that. I mean, that story perfectly illustrates it. Because uh, there's, there's, from a worldly perspective, there's nothing beautiful about that. But for those who have eyes to see, that is a, a seriously transcendent experience that those parents went through that you were witness to. Uh, and it came from both like not, not refusing to die and not refusing to live, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but there's some kind of like extreme (laughs) Christianity is an extreme sport, dude is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing that I re related to, thank you for telling that mess. That was beautiful it's too bad the wi-fi in that hospital is so rinky dink dude because it was you know i mean i got every basically every word of it but yeah you could piece it yeah together but the only thing i could relate it to honestly nothing from this summer um but did when the uh the family at uh oh yeah lost their little girl a couple years ago did you get did you go to that funeral connor no but i I, I didn't go to the funeral but i'm gonna have to bleep out the name now dude yeah, bleep out the name. That's fine. Um, but did you go to the funeral, Mets? No, but I remember you telling me about it, dude. It was it was the only uh, funeral of a child that um, I've ever been to, and it was I see. I would say, dude, Mets. Yeah, that has to be one of the most beautiful moments I've ever heard about. Like, it has to be one of the most profound moments of your life. I just. I'm convinced yep. of it. There's but. nothing fake about it. It wasn't like, it doesn't sound to yeah, me, like man. from when you were telling it, it doesn't sound to me like they were putting on airs or were pretending to believe anything. They were, like it was, it sounded in my imagination of what you were saying, like completely natural to everybody yep. dress in white to take their baby outside. Yeah, yep. man. And that's, that's like, it just, it gives you a glimpse of what humanity is and like how thin the veil can be. And like the image that came to me was from this funeral of a little girl that I went to. And afterwards, uh, as they were processing out, like there was this little white coffin up at the, at the front of the church. And it was, I'll never, I'll never forget this image but it was just showing like the strength that was there because of the transcendence um yeah it sounds crazy to say but this child's funeral was the most beautiful experience of my life and it was like the they had two other um little girls and the mom like she took them as they were processing out the mom took the two little girls and then the dad um of this family he went and he picked up his daughter's coffin and he carried it out himself but what the the image that struck me was that everyone else had processed out and then the mom and the little girls went and the dad picked up the coffin but the priest waited for the dad and so it was just the priest the the girl's dad and her coffin and then they walked out together out to the cemetery 
and I've I've honestly like I don't know if I've ever seen um I would have said like a more masculine moment than that but just I think you can make it broader just a more real moment than that like the emotion that I like felt at least when you told that story mess was that that was the only thing that like struck a chord in mm. me Hmm. Um, which is it's an absurd thing that you can say I was at a baby's funeral and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen it is absurd ridiculous you say that in public someone's going to smack you <laughs> yeah that's no. true. it almost sounds it sounds ridiculous to say it almost sounds dirty and but offensive. It, hmm. how, how can that what what does that even mean? Uh, that's so crazy. Yeah, this baby's death who never experienced life, who had never breathed fresh air or felt the raging hot sun of Georgia. That's, yeah, one of the most profound and beautiful moments of my life. What? <sighs> I guess it shows... That's all. I guess it shows that you really believe in the resurrection because if it, if it weren't for that, the promise of life beyond that death is the way to life, it would be absurd and offensive and disgusting to even say, like, there was anything good about a baby dying. Right. You know? That puts the test yeah. to your faith in the resurrection. It puts a test to your faith in that as a solution to the problem of evil and suffering. Of When people lob the grenade of, like, what about babies dying? How can there be a good God? And then you see Christians carry out their faith and it's not a blind like, well, we just kind of hope there's some kind of afterlife. It's like, no, we uh, we witness and hear the voice of and consume the flesh and blood of a risen God-man who came to us and lifted us out of this suffering. But the way out of it is not up. It's not floating above it. It's not escaping from it. It's going right down into it the same way he did. That's that's following Jesus is going down into it. And then in there, in that tomb, in that darkness is where you find Bladao, explosion of life. Yeah. Did you say Bladao? I said Bladao. Bladao. That's a new sound. I'm not going to. You've never it's heard Bladao? Maybe people don't say it anymore. Have people ever think. said it? I don't know. People say I'm not gonna lie and like become a that's cool one thing the, again. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Like you're not gonna lie. Who Okay, I I guess I <laughs> I guess I can't assume that about the other things you say, that you're not lying. <laughs> when people started saying that, it was like around college the first time I ever heard it, and then everyone was saying it. Dude, I'm not gonna lie. That night last night was insane. <laughs> yeah okay i'm gonna tell you the truth right now i had a banana at breakfast <laughs> man i've never thought of that i can never say that again Dang it. shoot <laughs> i say that a lot bladow dude and another thing oh goodness gracious dude i forgot to tell you guys this story holy crud goodness gracious <laughs> oh man tell i can't us. believe i almost forgot so I got emails on the Three Dogs North account from um, a young lady from Singapore. 
Uh, I think like last year, she emailed us and said she was really liking the thing, and she was not yet a Catholic, but she was considering becoming one. Well, she's a Catholic now. She's a university student in um, Singapore, and I, now I'm forgetting what her major is, but her interest is in Latin. Mm. So uh, she's extremely intelligent. The reason I know this is because she came to Blue Island, dude, and met me. <laughs> so what? And not in like a. I didn't feel stalked at all because she is. Uh, she was in <laughs> Chicago. She's in the United States by herself to look at churches. That was she proposed. Like you can apply for like student travel, and she proposed. Like I just want to go and look at the churches in the United States and the in the cities, like the old beautiful churches. Which is funny that she didn't go to Rome or something like that, but she came here and one of her stops was Chicago. She was here for like a week or two. And she's like, Hey, I'd like to bring you gifts from Singapore. So she brought me like Singaporean coffee that's cooked in a wok and is aromatic and delish. And also some, some like jam that you put on bread. And we sat and t- she, it was so funny because I, I just got back from El Salvador and she's like, I'm only here for a couple more days. You know, what if I just swing by? your parish or something. I'm like, well, I'll be in the office, um, you know, but I'll be busy. So, you know, feel free to drop in or whatever. And I'm going to the front where the secretary is to like mail something or get her to make some copies. And then there's this Asian person standing there (laughs) and I'm like, uh, can I help you? Are you looking for a priest? And she's like, um, I'm Pei Yun. And I was like, uh huh. It's like I emailed you. I'm like, oh, whoa, okay, yeah. <laughs> and then we, uh, I showed her the church and we talked. And I had an appointment in like ten minutes after she came, so it was kind of unfortunate. I didn't have more time to spend with her, but she was very gracious and uh, asked me to pray for uh, her friend or friend's cousin or something. His name is and young man doesn't. He was on the road to confirmation and then. All of a sudden, now he doesn't want to be confirmed and says he's an atheist. So, but anyway, she's mm. uh, she became a Catholic and she's loving it and listens to Three Dogs North and along with a bunch of her friends in Singapore, they've gotten into it and we have friends in Singapore. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's like the coolest thing. Mm-hmm. Huh? So yeah, I, I I'm fine with giving Payuna a shout out, a big yes. big time shout out, along with all no her friends. Doubt, dude. No yeah. doubt, all of Singapore. That's, I don't want. I don't want to reward like that specifically. Like coming to randomly surprise me at my parish with gifts. Like, what? let's not make that a precedent for all the fans out there in uh, you know Asia and Pacific Islands. But <laughs> <laughs> let's say if you do, if you do Dude, come from that far man. away, if you come from that far away, feel free to surprise me at my parish. But if you live in like Waukegan, <laughs> no, just email me. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisque, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And fear 
down. 